me to Luke chapter 1, where we're going to be looking this morning at verses 67 through to 75. Luke chapter 1 and verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness And righteousness before him all our days. Please keep your Bibles open there. I want to start off with a a quiz for you or a little bit of trivia for you. I wonder if you can tell me what these songs all have in common. I know they're all songs and I know they're all Christmas songs. Okay, so let's, let's eliminate that one. But I wonder if you know what they all have in common. For those who are listening to this audibly, uh, we have on the screen White Christmas. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Santa Claus is coming to town. The Christmas song, you know, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Uh, sleigh ride. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Uh, rocking around the Christmas tree. A holly jolly Christmas and let it snow, let it snow. Anybody know? Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. That's true. There's there's actually something even more surprising than that. They're all written by Jews. Every single one of them has been written by a Jew. I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas was written by Irvin Berlin, who was uh, a Jew. Santa Claus is Coming to Town was written by Fred Coots, who was a Jew. The Christmas song uh, was sung by Nat King Cole, but it was written by a man called Mel Torn, who was a Russian Jew who immigrated to America. Sleigh Ride was written by Mitchell Parrish, a Jewish immigrant from Lithuania to America and who's buried in the Beth David Cemetery in Elmont, New York. Uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Rocking Around the Christmas Tree and A Holly Jolly Christmas were all written by a Jewish man called Johnny Marks. The Christmas Waltz was written by two Jewish peoples, uh, a lyricist by the name of Samuel Kahn, uh, whose name was originally Cohen, Samuel Cohen, and Jules Stein, uh, who changed his name from S-T-E-I-N, which is the Jewish way, to S-T-Y-N-E. And Let It Snow was also written by there. There was one other I forgot to put on there, and that's a You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. 
That was written by a Jew as well. In fact, there's quite an interesting story about that one. He was uh, written by a man called Albert Haig, who escaped Nazi Germany when he was 18 years old. So it's fascinating, isn't it, that so much of the music we have at Christmas time, both secular and spiritual, was actually written by Jewish people. And today we're going to look at another song which was written by a Jewish man. Uh, Admittedly, it's more Wesley than Presley, and it's more spiritual and much better for our souls. But it's a song that moves our hearts, not just our feet. And it's the song of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Now, just to give you the background, I'm sure most of you will probably already know this, but the background to the story is that Zachariah has been dumb of speech. He has been mute for nine months. Now, that's every wife's dream, I'm sure. But it happened as a result of unbelief when he was serving in the temple and the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him that their prayers had been answered and God was going to give Elizabeth a child. And he, he said, how can this be, you know, in unbelief? Uh, and the angel said that because of his unbelief, God was going to make him dumb until the baby was born. Well, the baby has been born and he has just named him the name John, which was the name the angel gave him. And now his tongue has been loosed. It's actually a picture of what was happening with Elizabeth. Elizabeth was barren and she couldn't, give, couldn't bring forth a child. His mouth was barren. It couldn't bring forth words. Mary was going to be a virgin, unable to bring forth a child. But God, in each case, did a miracle. And that's what happened in his mouth. God did a miracle for a mute man to be able to speak. And he loosened his tongue. And he loosened his tongue, uh, as the hymn says, our loosened tongues employ. But he didn't use it to argue back at God. Why did you do that to me? Why, why have I, oh, okay, I didn't believe, but why did you strike me for nine months uh, without speech? I wasn't able to give the blessing at the end of, uh, of the temple service, which a priest in that role would normally do. No, he didn't argue with God. Instead, he used it to praise God. And the Bible tells us in verse 67, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. That means he was inspired. He was inspired. The Bible tells us that scripture was written by holy men of God who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is a good example of the very fact. And he gives us a song under the influence of the Holy Spirit in two parts. The first part is a blessing hymn to God in verse 67 to 75. And then the second part is a a birthday hymn to his son, John the Baptist, in verses 76 to 79, prophesying his ministry. Now, we're not going to look at the the birthday hymn part. We're going to look just at the blessing hymn part uh, at the start there and, uh, and see his praises to God. But it's a remarkable praise because... He's just had a child, but he's not praising God, first of all, for his child or for his tongue being loosed. He's praising God for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of the Lord Jesus through Mary. And uh, his focus is on what is about to happen. It is what I call pre-Christmas praise. 
And before it's even happened, which is real faith now, he's trusting God. He's praising God for what God is going to do in the future through this child. And it's, it's a beautiful song of pre-Christmas praise, which I think we can learn from. You know, Christmas is a very important time of the year for the church. It's a, chi- it's a time when we're able to get the gospel out and share with more non-Christians than probably any other time of the year. But let's not forget, for us who are believers, our priority is always to be a worshipper of God. A.W. Tozer put it like this. He said, God wants worshippers before workers. Indeed, the only acceptable workers are those who have learned the lost art of worship. And I think he's right. You know, unless we're those who know the Lord, love the Lord, worship the Lord, then we're not ready to be in active service. So as we go into this Christmas season, let's take our cue from Zechariah and let it be a season of worship as well as evangelism. Let's praise God for what he has done, just as he praised God for what God was going to do. And Zechariah's song is broken in to three parts here that we're going to look at this morning. He praises God for redemption, for fulfillment, meaning fulfillment of prophecy, and for service in verses 74 and 75. So let's have a look at these, uh, at these subdivisions and, and study the passage together. First of all, uh, he praises God for redemption in verse 68. He says, praise be or blessed be, as it says in the King James, uh, which is a very Jewish phrase, actually. If you ever hear the Passover Seder, how they, they praise God, blessed be uh, our, our God, who's the king of the universe. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. The King James says he hath visited and redeemed his people. When Jesus was coming, it was going to be God visiting the earth. And it was going to be God coming on a salvation mission. Actually, later on in Luke chapter 7 and uh, verse 10, I believe it is, uh, verse 15, sorry, it says they were all filled with awe after Jesus had done the miracle and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. God has visited his people. So this is where he begins. He begins with a note of praise for the redemption that the Lord is going to bring. He's going to redeem his people. And he praises God for the baby who's going to be his redeemer. Now, what does it mean to be a redeemer? To redeem something is to buy something back to buy something back, to purchase something back that has been sold to someone else uh, or something that has been lost to someone else. And uh, this was something that the Lord Jesus came to do through his death on the cross to buy us back from from, uh, sin to God. Uh, His death was the price of our redemption, or his blood, I should say, was the price of our redemption, Ephesians 1, I think it's verse 7, says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. You see, we need that because of what has happened. You know, back in the year 2000, in February the 18th, 2000, in America, in Pennsylvania, 
there was a man by the name of Warren Wine, or Warren Wine who decided it was time to take down his Christmas tree. By February 18th, I think it was probably time then, you know. And uh, he, he lived on the sixth floor of a, an apartment building. And he thought, I've been this lazy this long. He said, I'm not now going to suddenly become active and suddenly take it down. So what he did, he stripped it of all the decorations and he took it to the window of the apartment and he threw it out of the apartment from the sixth window, hoping to get it down into the refuge collection area down below. Unfortunately, what happened was the Christmas tree instead hit the power lines and it cut off the electricity for 400 homes in his area. One man's actions caused problems for everybody else. That's where we're at as human beings. What Adam did back in the Garden of Eden has brought us all into the bondage of sin. And we all need to be redeemed. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ came to die on the cross, to pay for our sins, that we may be redeemed, brought back to God. That's what Christmas is about. I don't know whether I'll do this, but I came across this little poem that, uh, that illustrates this fact. The poem goes like this. It's Christmas time in our house and we're putting up the tree. I wish I could find some simple way to remember God's gift to me. Some little sign or symbol to show friends stopping by. The little baby was born one day, but really he came to die. Some symbol of his nail-pierced hands, the blood he shed for me. What if I hung a nail on my Christmas tree? I know it was his love for us that held him to the tree, But when I see this simple nail, I'll know he died for me. It may seem strange at Christmas time to think of nails and wood, but both were used in Jesus' life to bring us something good. From manger bed to crown of thorns to death on Calvary, God used the wood and the nails of men to settle people free. So it makes a point, doesn't it? You know, the purpose Jesus came was to be nailed to that cross to pay the price for our salvation. And that's where Zechariah began his Christmas worship. I want to ask today, can you worship God as your Redeemer? Can you worship Christ as your Redeemer, the one who paid the price for your redemption? Have you trusted yet in the Saviour who came to do that? If not, then you can do today, as I was explaining to the children. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Salvation is through faith in Christ alone and what he did on the cross. Not what we do for God, but what he did for us. And if we rest in him, we will be saved. Then we can praise him as our redeemer. So first of all, then, Zechariah praises for redemption. Secondly, he praises God for fulfillment in verses 69 to 73. And uh, it's a a wonderful thing he he does here. He says uh, a a series of verses which actually, if you study them, a lot of them are quotations and allusions to the Old Testament. It's a fascinating thing because what he's doing is He's looking forward to Jesus and what Jesus is going to do, but he's looking back at the same time. And he's looking back at all that God has promised 
that Jesus would come and do. And he's praising God for the fulfillment of it before it's even come to pass. And I'll tell you about this man, Butch Baker of North Carolina. He has a little hobby, okay? And wives, if your husband has a hobby, now's the time to stop complaining, okay? Because uh, his hobby is a little bit more of a problem. He loves to make paper chains. You say, well, that's not so bad. We'll just look at what's behind him. Can you see that? That is the world's biggest paper chain of 25 miles long. And he sits there and adds to it every evening. You know, that's a, that's a long paper chain. But I want to tell you, dear friends, there's a bigger paper chain that goes through scripture. And it's the paper chain of prophecy. Here's one I made for a children's talk many years ago. And I've kept for illustrating this very same thing. It's just a few of the Bible promises written on every chain, every link of the chain, of what God would do with, through the Lord Jesus Christ when he came into the world. Starting at Genesis 3, verse 15, God said it would be the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, and Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, wasn't he? Uh, going to Genesis 22, verse 18, God said to Abraham, through your offspring, all the world all the earth will be blessed. And uh, going on to 2 Samuel 7.13, from the line of King David, that king would come. So from Abraham and David, Christ would come. And so on, right the way through to the last prophecies uh, in Malachi of the special messenger coming and the Christ being risen. This is by no means all of them. In fact, if you read Herbert Lockyer's big fat book, All the Prophecies in the Bible, you'll get an idea of some of the prophecies there were. It's an amazing paper chain from one end of Genesis to the other end of Malachi. And Zechariah is looking to this to be fulfilled in the life of Christ. No longer an unbeliever saying, how can this be? Now he is praising God for what is yet to be as if it's even done. And in verse 69, he says, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. <coughs> Now, he starts with David, and he's actually going to go back to Abraham afterwards. Normally, we would do it the other way around. But he starts with the Davidic promise, because this is very important. And uh, Luke is very interested in the Davidic promise being fulfilled, because it's the, the promise of the line of the king. And he calls him a horn of salvation. When Boris Johnson was prime minister, one of the things he tried to help uh, do was help sign paperwork to stamp out poaching and importing of poached things. And uh, he did a photo display. And I always remember this picture. It's with a rhino horn, a 26-pound rhino horn. Look at that thing. Can you imagine that, the power behind that rhino horn and being on the end of that? I mean... That is formidable, isn't it? That's the center of the power. It's all in one place at the tip of that horn when it strikes its enemy. Well, this is what Jesus is in the coming, in his incarnation. He is the horn of David's house and he is the horn of salvation raised up for us. He's the one who fulfills in his life and in his death all the prophecies and the coming of the kingdom uh, prophesied 
to David. As he says in verse 70, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Many prophecies going right the way back to the book of Genesis and the right way back to the Garden of Eden indeed. And then in verse 71 he says salvation from our enemies and the hand of all who hate us. Not just that Jesus is going to die on the cross for our sins, but he's also going to save us from our enemies. Now, it's quite interesting reading the commentators. A lot of commentators say he's going to save us from the enemy of sin. He's going to save us from Satan and that. And that's true. But actually, Zechariah is probably thinking here of the people of Israel and their literal local enemies who were trying to destroy them. Just as in the Middle East now. They're in what has been called a theatre of threat. They live surrounded by enemies right now who want to kill them. And by the way, if I can just say this, people say, why is Israel being so harsh in Gaza? Israel wants to be feared. That's why she's being harsh. She wants to be feared. She doesn't want others coming and doing it to her as well. And that's what's happening. And uh, this is uh, the, the battle that they're against. But when Christ comes, he will save from their enemies and from the hand of all who want to annihilate them uh, when he comes at his second coming at the Battle of Armageddon and they will be free from oppression forever. And he says in verse 72, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. And uh, this is, I believe, a quote from Psalm 98, verse 3. And he's looking back uh, in part to the psalm and quoting the psalm there. But there's an interesting play of words here uh, the scholars have picked out. Because, you see, Zachariah and Elizabeth, as all Jews, they would know the meanings of their names. Their names are important in the Bible. The name Zechariah means Jehovah, or the Lord has remembered. That's what his name means. His wife Elizabeth, her name means God is swearer. That's according to Young's Analytical Concordance. Now, what does he say? To show us mercy to our fathers and to remember Zechariah's name, his holy covenant. The oath he swore Elizabeth's name to our father Abraham. And he is looking back to the covenants and he's using their names as a tool to message that. And then in verse 74, to rescue us from the hands of our enemies yet again. So he's, he's talking here uh, about the fulfillment of the prophecies, including the prophecies to Abraham and David. And, I, and this is what he's praising God for, for the fulfillment of prophecy. I want to say, dear friends, when we celebrate Christmas this year, let's remember that. We'll sing those words for sure. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. What does that mean? The hopes of all the years, all the prophets before, are met in Christ, who came to be the fulfillment of Scripture. This is what Christmas is about. I wonder if you uh, are familiar with Lorna Wilcox, uh, Simcox, sorry. Lorna Simcox is the editor of the magazine Israel My Glory, which some in this room may get. And she is a Jewish lady. In fact, she was a journalist who became a Christian uh, as a result of, of, of looking into Christianity. In one of her editorials, she told this story. She said, when I was eight years old, I had a friend named Mary. She moved to Vermont from California, lived two houses away and attended a Catholic school. Every year I'd watch her family prepare for Christmas. 
They would decorate their home and bake cookies and trim a big Christmas tree and pile presents underneath it in their living room. Being Jewish, I always felt a little left out. One year, I wanted to give Mary something so badly, I took one of my Bobsy Twins books, I got some books called that, uh, wrapped it in plain brown paper, used knitting yarn to, be a bow, to tie a bow, and hiked through the snow to put it under her tree. Then I walked home, watched the snow fall to the ground, and I wondered what Christmas was really all about. She says, today, of course, I no longer wonder. I know what Christmas is about. And the true point of the holiday is surprisingly more Jewish than Gentile. She says, it's about how a faithful covenant-keeping God fulfilled his promise to his people Israel to send them a Messiah. What could be more Jewish than that? (laughs) I agree. And that's exactly what Zechariah is saying. God, you have been covenant faithful to fulfill your promises and to send the Messiah. And that's what he was worshipping God for. So as we praise the Lord for redemption, let's praise him as well for the fulfillment of prophecy. It is an amazing, amazing thing. The final thing Zechariah praises God for is service and the opportunity now to worship the Lord with freedom as a result of what Christ is going to do. He says in verse 74 and 75, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. I came across this story in the newspaper. I wouldn't normally advertise uh, a story about someone winning the lottery. I don't want to give you any ideas. Uh, but this gentleman by the name uh, of Dizis Piraj, I think that's how you pronounce it, he's Latvian. He won uh, a million pounds on a scratch card. He's a single father of a, a five-year-old uh, boy, and he has to work long shifts as a chef. Uh, to look after his boy and live in a little flat. He won his Christmas, he won his money just before Christmas. But the reason he made it in the newspaper was not just because he won, but because he still went to work on Christmas Day to finish his shift. And they said, really, this guy didn't need to do that. But he said, I wanted to finish my shift. I said I'd be there. If I don't be there, somebody else has got to be there. And he went there to serve. Uh, and so I have to be honest with you, you know, again, I'm, I don't, I'm not promoting lottery and gambling at all, but that story really touched me. I think to myself, would I have done that? And would I have said, great, I never have to work again, and walked away regarding, disregarding the need of service? Well, this man uh, in Zechariah, he himself saw salvation as an opportunity to serve God and what was going to come would be a result would, would result in the opportunity to serve him to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear they won't be under oppression anymore so now they will be able to serve the Lord Matthew Henry the Bible commentator said the great design of gospel grace is not to discharge us from 
but to engage us to and encourage us in the service of God. And we should be those who serve God, as he says in verse 75, in holiness and righteousness. You say, what's the difference between those two things? I don't really understand. Holiness is towards God. Righteousness is towards the law and towards his, his commands. So holiness is, is our, uh, our personal connection with God. But in holiness and righteousness, we're to serve him before him all our days. You never come to retirement if you're a believer in the Lord. And I wonder if that's what you and I are praising God for this Christmas. Yeah, we praise God for redemption. We praise God for fulfillment. But service, uh, you know, for me to have to do something. Yeah, really and truthfully, it's a privilege to serve the Lord. It's a privilege to serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we should do so joyfully. David Brainard prayed, here am I, send me if it be but in thy service and to promote thy kingdom. And that should be the prayer for each and every one of us. Can I ask, do you have a servant heart? The preacher Gordon MacDonald said this, you can tell whether you have become a servant by how you act when people treat you like one. I wrote that down because I thought I'm going to have to live that. you, You can tell whether you've become a servant by how you act when people treat you like one. I'll do this for us, would you? Oh no, that's not my job. You haven't become a servant then, have you? You know, we should be ready. Lord, what can I do for you? This Christmas, let's rejoice in the opportunity of serving him. So what beautiful praise Zachariah gives us at the end of his uh, at the end, uh, in his uh, in his song, and may the Lord help each one of us to praise the Lord for these things in this Christmas season too, and to follow His great example. I'm going to skip the last slide.